welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Countdown, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Rachel Maddow Show, Ring of Fire, The Colbert Report, The Mother Jones Podcast, and It's All Politics from NPR. Now, definitely make sure you stick around at the end of the show for one of the biggest announcements I ever made. In fact, you may want to just skip ahead. Nancy Pelosi, you burn in hell for this. That was Mr. Pelosi. No, um, I, I joke. That was actually a protester at the Capitol on Thursday. Speaker Pelosi runs the risk of hellfire for introducing what? The, the new healthcare program? Exactly, this House healthcare <laughs> bill. It was an interesting week in the continuing healthcare reform drama. First, earlier in the week, Senate leader Harry Reid introduced his bill, which had a public option in it. Observers could not have been more stunned if he had shown up to introduce his fiance, Angelina Jolie. <laughs> then, a few days later, Speaker Pelosi introduced the House plan. The rules there allow her to do what she wants, which explains the robust public option, the expanded regulatory powers, and the subsidy for machinery to help bend her face into a smile. <laughs> So liberals were really happy with all this, but then Senator Joseph Lieberman entered the debate, which is the same kind of buzzkill as your mother joining Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here he comes. He said he would filibuster the bill, in effect putting on a homemade Santa suit and coming down from Mount Crumpet to steal the public option <laughs> while Senator Schumer slept in his bed. <laughs> I don't know why nobody's talking about the public enemy option, which is to just have, literally have the rap group Public Enemy do all the medical diagnosis. I mean, Flavor Flav is yeah, that's true. crazy like a fox. I know. If man is the father, the son is the center of the earth. In the middle of the universe, then why is this verse coming six times rehearsed? Don't freestyle much, but I write them like such. Word. Amongst the fiends controlled by the screens, what does it all mean, all this I'm seeing? Human beings screaming vocal javelins, sign of a local unraveling. Uh -huh. My wandering got my wondering with crisis and all this crisis. Hating Satan never knew what nice is. Check the papers, well, I bet on ISIS. More than your eye can see and ears can hear. Year by year, all the sense disappears. Nonsense perseveres, prayers lips with fear. Beware, two triple A. It might feel needle. good, it might sound a little something. But damn the game, if it don't mean nothing. What is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something. But the game, if it ain't saying nothing. Seven words amid the town hall chaos of July and August that captured just how definitively the Democrats had been losing the message war in the health care debate. Keep your government hands off my Medicare. Our fifth story on the countdown. Democrats in one chamber of Congress at least finally catching on to the selling point that Medicare is a public option. Now looking to rebrand the public option as Medicare for everybody. And if it sounds trivial or even demeaning, it apparently brought a house blue dog over to the side of the angels. Introducing Medicare Part E, the E standing for everybody, Speaker Pelosi, unveiling to her members a public plan that would reimburse hospitals and providers at Medicare rates. What's more, the Speaker making sure that such a robust public option would be cost-effective, something the Senate Finance Committee vehemently disputed when it did not put the public option in its bill. The Congressional Budget Office concluding that the House public plan would come in at well under $900 billion, which is President Obama's benchmark for any bill, and it would be deficit neutral over 10 years. It certainly didn't originate here, but someone on this news hour having advocated for Medicare for Everybody two weeks ago tonight. The public option is, in broad essence, Medicare for Everybody. Frame it that way, sell it that way, and suddenly it doesn't sound like a threat, turning the seemingly solid insurance which people have now, for better or worse, into something optional, and turning anything private into everything public. Once you said Medicare for everybody, there would be just as much to explain. If you were under 65, you'd be paying for it. You wouldn't have to buy it. You wouldn't have to change from whatever you have now. There are just as many caveats. Still, the intent of all this would be clearer. Medicare for everybody might not be literally true, but instead of terrifying, it would be reassuring. And the explanations and the caveats would be listened to and not shouted down as anger and fear. 
The House also taking the next step in taking away the insurance industry's antitrust exemption. The House Judiciary Committee voting 20 to 9 to strip the insurance cartel of that exemption. Three Republicans switched sides to support the measure. The Senate hoping to follow suit. Chairman Leahy of the Judiciary Committee having introduced his own measure there. Majority Leader Reid said to be inclined to incorporate that measure into the broader health bill. Meanwhile, doctors now facing a 21 percent in their Medicare payments come January unless Congress steps in. The Senate still deadlocked on that issue, including Democrats amongst themselves. Only 47 senators, all Democrats, voting for quick approval of a proposal that would have extended current rates through next year for doctors who treat seniors on Medicare. 13 Democrats and independents voting with the Republicans against what's known as the doctor's fix because of concerns the bill's $250 billion price tag would add to the overall cost of reforming health care, adding that the majority leader's decision to bring this to a separate vote was disingenuous. President Obama said to be entering a quiet period until congressional Democrats work things out. At a Democratic fundraiser last night, the president commenting on the quirks of his fellow party members. You know, sometimes Democrats can be their own worst enemies. Democrats are an opinionated bunch. You know, the other side, they just kind of sometimes do what they're told. Democrats, y'all thinking for yourselves. I like that in you, but it's time for us to make sure that we finish the job here. We are this close. about bankruptcy, how medical debt can lead to bankruptcy, and that perhaps that we should change the way that the system is structured now. In fact, uh, this is a shocking fact. Uh, 62, nearly 62% of all U.S. bankruptcies in 2007 were due to health care costs. Can you imagine that? 62% of all bankruptcies because of health care problems. And of those people, by the way, 78% of them were insured. And it still didn't help them, okay? So obviously, it's a major issue, and there's a huge connection there. And they had a number of people who testified, including Elizabeth Edwards for uh, Center for American Progress, et cetera. They also had a conservative testify, of course, a senior fellow, Diana Frickot Roth. Uh, and she testified that if we move toward a European-style system of universal health care, that that would actually increase bankruptcies. Now, if 62% of our bankruptcies are because of medical costs, wow, how high must Europe's be if she thinks it's going to increase the number of bankruptcies? Well, Al Franken was a little incredulous about that, too, and he asked her a series of devastating questions. Let's watch. Dr. Uh, uh, Frick uh, got Roth. Um, I think we disagree on whether... Um, health care reform, uh, the health care reform that we're talking about now in Congress should pass. And you said that um, kind of the way we're going will increase bankruptcies. I, I, want, you, I want to ask you how many um, uh, bankruptcies because of medical crises were there last year in, in Switzerland? I don't have that number in front of me, but I could find yeah. out. And I can tell you how many it was. Get back to you. It, it's zero. Do you know how many medical bankruptcies there were last year in France? I don't have that number, but I can get back to you if you like. Yeah, the number is zero. Do <laughs> you know how many were in Germany? From the trend of your questions, I'm assuming the answer is zero, but I don't know the precise amount, and I would have mm -hmm. to get back to you. Well, you're very good. You're very good. 
fast. The point is, is that I think we need to go in that direction, not in the opposite direction. Thank you. Do you know the cancer survival rates in those countries? You know, you've, you've picked on one, and, and if you look at that study, did you know that we pick easily, much more easily survivable cancer rates? So if you want to start getting into deep, digging, digging deep in the studies, <laughs> that study isn't legitimate. I've heard that before. That's because we find easily survivable cancers to count as ones that we survive. So if you want to, you know, you can cherry pick stuff to find one little place where somebody says our system works better than the French or the Germans. But I, we're talking about bankruptcy here today. And the fact of the matter is, you're saying that if we go more to a French system or a Swiss system, that we'll have increased bankruptcies, but the fact is they don't have bankruptcies and we do for medical care. Thank you. Thank you. Now I include that second part in there because she thinks, oh, I'm gonna be a clever little person and I'm gonna throw out this random statistic that probably Al Franken, the comedian, doesn't know and I'll distract people from what the actual conversation is. Yeah, that didn't work out for you because he did know it. <laughs> and you look at that whole line of questioning and you're like, damn, the dude knows stuff, man. He's smart, so if you're going to come at Al Franken, you best come correct. So that was fantastic. And every time he went to a new country, I pictured like a wrestler climbing the ropes, getting ready for, oh, no, not again. Not again. Oh, the top rope was singular out of the sky. No, forgot. I mean, forgot about it. <laughs> you're done. Okay, so that was fantastic. Have you ever seen a one-trick pony and feel so happy and free? If you've ever seen a one-trick pony, then you've seen me. Have you ever seen a one-legged dog making his way down the street? If you've ever seen a one-legged dog, then you've seen me. Then you've seen me. I come and stand it. And you've seen me always leave with less than I had before And you've seen me, but I can make you smile when the blood it hits the floor Tell me, friend, can you ask for anything more? Tell me, can you ask for anything more? Nancy Pelosi's health care bill has much to commend it and much to condemn it. On the plus side, there's a public option with no opt-out. The insurance companies won't be able to deny coverage for pre-existing conditions or rescind policies once someone gets sick, and it greatly expands Medicaid. Currently, Medicaid doesn't cover all poor Americans. If you're single and poor, you're out of luck. And if you're married and poor but don't have young kids, you're also out of luck. But under Pelosi's plan, every adult in America who's poor would qualify for Medicaid. And her plan raises the qualifying definition of poor up to 150% of the poverty line. That means anyone earning under 16 grand would be eligible for Medicaid. The bill isn't perfect, though. I wish Pelosi's public option would have been open to everybody. Like Obama's plan, not many of us would be able to join it. And I wish it would have kept Kucinich's amendment to allow states to experiment with universal coverage. Pelosi could have come forward with a stronger bill, knowing the Senate would water it down. She didn't need to turn on the sprinklers herself. Just, just a few days shy of November, 
the U.S. Senate took one giant step closer to where President Obama wanted it to be in August. In a highly anticipated afternoon press conference today, the top Democrat in the Senate, Harry Reid, announced what the Senate will be voting on when it votes on health reform. Months worth of speculation about whether there would be a public option in the bill has now ended. There will be a public option. I believe that a public option can achieve the goal of bringing meaningful reform to our broken system. It will protect consumers, keep insurers honest, and ensure competition. And that's why we intend to include it in the bill that we submitted, that will be submitted to the Senate. I've concluded with the support of the White House, Senators Dodd and Baucus, that the best way to move forward is to include a public option with the opt-out provision for states. So there you have it. The public option lives, but it's a public option with a big asterisk. A state that doesn't want the public option can opt out of the public option. There's a pretty big range of options overall on the table for trying to fix our broken health system. On one far end of the spectrum, we could have ended up with a British-style nationalized health system. It's the government owning the healthcare system, employing doctors, and providing coverage for every resident, man, woman, and child. And that's what we have for, for, for veterans' healthcare in this country. That's how the VA runs, and that's how England runs. If we can't get that, if we're too conservative a country to go for something like that for more than just our veterans, we could have also gone for the Canadian system, which is essentially Medicare. The government doesn't employ doctors and nurses like they do in England, but it's a single-payer system. The government provides everyone with insurance. That's what Canada has. That's what our Medicare is. A more conservative alternative to that is, there's no flag for this one, but uh, it's the public option. Uh, a public option that's available to everyone. One Medicare-style, government-run health insurance program that competes with all of our private insurance companies. You can either get your insurance from like Blue Cross or you can get it from the government if you like. That's what our next guest, Senator Ron Wyden, has proposed. Everybody has the choice of the public option if they want it. And now, more conservative than that, it's a public option that is only available to you if you are currently uninsured. Already have insurance, but you don't like it? Sorry, no public option for you. Even more conservative than that is a public option that's only for the uninsured and is only in some places. It's only available to some people in some parts of the country. If your state's lawmakers decide they don't want Michiganders or Texans to be able to choose the public option, then if you live in one of those states, you don't get the public option choice. Even more conservative than that, this is a big one. Stick. Sorry, they don't make tape like they used to. Uh, it's the public option maybe someday. This is the triggered public option that only kicks in if certain yet-to-be-determined goals aren't met by private insurance companies years down the road. Where we ended up today <clears throat> is not the trigger. So not maybe someday. We didn't get the most conservative of all those options. But we also didn't get what they do in Britain and the VA or what they got in Canada with Medicare. We also didn't get a public option that's available to everyone or even a public option available only to uninsured people. What we, what we got was a public option that's only available to uninsured people only in some places. Woohoo! Thank goodness we've got 60 Democrats in the Senate, right? Of all the different things that Harry Reid could have put forward, of all the options that we had as a country, we've ended up, at least in the Senate proposal, with a public option, but a really modest, conservative version of the public option. Maybe that means it'll get 100 votes in the Senate? You're right. Republicans will clearly all still vote against this. Even Olympia Snow says this is too much public option for her to stand. Beyond the politics, though, how well will this work? It's a public option, again, just for uninsured people, and it probably won't be available in some states. One of the main arguments for the public option is that it would be big, and it would not only have the potential to give people another option at the consumer level, another choice of who you get your insurance from, it would also, because it would be big, have the potential to save the country a lot of money on health care. Part of the reason it would save money is because if it's big enough, it can spread the insurance risk among that many more people. It also needs to be a big enough player in the marketplace to be able to bargain effectively to keep costs down. If they only take up a really small part of the market, they're not going to have much bargaining power with the people who control how high health costs are. The small 
smaller the number of people that are allowed to participate in the public option. The more you restrict who can get it based on things like where people live or whether or not they've already got some other form of insurance, the less likely it's going to be. The bigger it is, the more effective it's going to be at keeping costs down. So politically, what's been created is an incentive in which conservative politicians can say at the state level, the public option won't work. And if enough of those conservative politicians can persuade their states to opt out of it, then that prediction that it won't work could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Still though, we have sort of come a long way, even with the asterisks. this what about even republican voters favor the public option i mean that's that's remarkable you know okay. if you look at the numbers on all of this you, you you would you would if you listen to the media you would not you'd almost ignore the fact that you, that you have about 80% of the american public that want you know they want a public option if you just listen to the media it's like well there must be a real you know there must be a real divide here there's not a divide well, you know, one of the interesting things about this question, Mike, is the kind of the it goes to the intellectual integrity of the GOP, because the GOP has been saying for many, many years, look, um, government is so inefficient, it can't compete with private industry. And so and, you know, there, therefore, we have to give everything to Blackwater and we have to give it, you know, to Halberton and to fight our wars and private industry now has to do everything. So now Obama's saying, look, we're going to have a public option that is not funded by taxpayer dollars. He said that hmm. it's going to be it's going to be set up as a uh, as a cooperative, essentially, that is as a nonprofit that is run by government officials. But it has to make its own money. It has to make its balance sheet work. So if it can do that, why wouldn't you let it compete against private industry if it's going to you know, bring a huge benefit to the American people? Yeah, and and but, you're not forcing anybody to take it. No. You're saying to people, you've got to have some kind of health care, the same as somebody who drives a car has to have insurance. You've got to have some kind of health care so that your health costs don't land on the rest of us. But – you can either choose this public option if you like it or go to one of the private options and and force yeah. instead of you know basically fixing everything so that they're making billions of dollars and you know we're watching our our healthcare costs go through the roof you know, all of a sudden, the industry is going to have a competitor that says, we don't care about the money. We yeah, care about but, but, making but people what's healthier. What's remarkable to me, the real edge to this is you've got this huge public outcry for public options. But if you just follow mainstream media, you would think that there's a real divide. And why? Real good, real good ideas on this. Why does NBC or CBS or ABC want to, to, to have real reform. First of all, it's going to increase their taxes. The people that are running those op, those people, you know, th those programs, they are the ones that are going to hit, you know, get hit with two to five percent surcharge for reform. They're the ones that are going to have to pay more to to have the kind of coverage that they're supposed to have for their employees. I mean, look, th there is a money issue behind why the media has missed this. They haven't missed it because they're stupid. They've missed it on purpose.
not the only one under attack in this debate. President Obama has been demonizing health insurance companies with a viciousness he usually reserves for fair and balanced news networks who happen to compare him to Hitler. Now, the issue that the president and everyone else on the left has been harping on is pre-existing conditions. The company I went to, Golden Rule, denied me, and when I asked why, they said, um, well, you've had a C-section, so you've been denied. Domestic abuse can actually be a pre-existing condition, so you can't get insurance. Cancer, diabetes, acne, or other pre-existing condition. Pregnancy could be considered a pre-existing condition. That's why, before I have sex, I call Allstate. <laughs> then, then I know I'm in good hands. Now, clearly, being denied coverage for pre-existing conditions is a problem, even for people who haven't had much pre-existence. Kelly and Bernie Lang applied for individual health coverage for their son when he was two months old, but they were turned down. The insurer's reasoning, he was simply too fat. Aislinn is a healthy 22-pound girl. She was initially denied health insurance because she was too skinny. A kid that skinny doesn't need health care coverage. Why spend money on an x-ray when we can just hold her up to a bright light? Now, let's face it. Let's face it, folks. Pre-existing conditions are ruining health care. And they bring us to tonight's word. Eugenics. Folks. Insurance companies are just as upset about pre-existing conditions as we are. Just look at this ad made by the health insurance lobby. If everyone's covered, we can make health care as affordable as possible. And the words pre-existing condition become a thing of the past. Now, yes, the insurance companies invented the term pre-existing condition in order to deny us coverage. But they'd like to find some way to stop that. It's like they're punching us in the face and saying, I wish you didn't have such a punchable face. <laughs> but we have got to see this whole thing from the insurance company's perspective. They're not being inhumane to patients because they don't see patients as humans. We're a commodity like gold or hog futures. Now, they make, they make their money betting that their investment, us, will maintain value, i.e. stay healthy. But every time you visit a doctor, you lose market value. You see, sound investment, sound investment means minimizing risk, and nothing is riskier than betting on a human being. The fact is, folks, we all have something. Maybe you've got a flawed aorta that didn't show up on the EKG, or a genetic predisposition for horking down bacon. For insurance companies, we might as well be subprime mortgages. So I say, don't blame the insurers, folks. You wouldn't buy a banana with spots on it. Why should the insurance company buy ones with banana diabetes? So if, if insurance companies are going to cover all people, first we're going to have to start making people without pre-existing conditions by breeding the insurable with the insurable. Just call it, just call it the master race. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Hear me out. You're saying, Steve, and master race has such ugly connotations. Yes. But, but, we're not talking about, you know, not letting black people or Jewish people reproduce. We're just saying you can't have babies if you're a group prone to, say, sickle cell anemia or Tay-Sachs. That's, that, that's a little too, that's a little too pre-existing. Now, remember, remember, folks, selective breeding and genetic modification have worked miracles for our fruits, vegetables, and livestock. So, if you... If you are a healthy woman who qualifies for insurance, let's mate you with one of the few men we know an insurance company would never deny coverage to, their CEO. 
Your baby will never be denied coverage for being too fat or too skinny if you mate with Rocky Mountain Health Plan CEO Steve Erkenbrack. He makes those babies just right. And ladies, don't worry about being denied coverage after your C-section if that baby got planted by Golden Rule Health CEO Richard A. Collins. Now, some people may find it unpleasant to have their loved ones screwed by insurance CEOs. But face it, that is our present pre-existing condition. And that's the word. We'll be right back. to health care reform. Republican Senator Olivia Snow supported the health care reform bill, uh, surprising, I think, many in the GOP. Is this, is, is she the kind of Republican that can only be found in Maine at this point? It, it feels like there's such a huge divide between Republicans of, of her nature and, and Glenn Beck. David, what do you think? Well, yes, because there's also another Republican like that in Maine, Susan Collins. I know. What you is think, it with Maine and female it, Republican Female Republicans, senators? well, um... There are just a handful. I mean, this is part of the problem that Barack Obama, ha- Barack Obama has when he campaigns and wanting to be bipartisan and transcend politics. But the Republican Party has been so thoroughly beaten in the last two elections by the Democrats that that it has very little of a moderate wing. A lot of the moderate Republicans, particularly from the Northeast, in the Senate and in the House, have been knocked off by. Democrats. And so the Republicans that remain standing are Republicans from, you know, this, you know, the, the uh, strongholds of, of the Republican Party. And they're the ones least likely to want to step forward and cut a deal with Democrats. So there really are just a handful. Uh, you know, there was the so-called gang of six uh, that was negotiating three Democrats and, and three Republicans in the, in the Senate. And, you know, those might have been, you know, considered moderate Republicans. But there, there aren't that many anymore. So it makes it really difficult. And um, we almost have to see at the end of the day if, if, um, if, if um, Olympia Snow, how much sway she has over Susan Collins. But one way she is important is that at least if you get one Republican, maybe two Republicans on the bill, then you get those, you know, really cranky conservative Democrats to maybe have less concern about voting for the bill because they now have some Republican cover. Kevin, are you feeling pretty optimistic now that we're going to get this passed? Well, I'm feeling more optimistic. You know, as you get to the end of these things, there's a there's a lot of there's a, there's a, a lot of, of frenzy uh, around who's getting what and who's threatening what that can that can make you feel like things are right on the edge. And, you know, as David said, I mean, you really are right on the edge, right? I mean, Democrats have 60 votes. They need 60 votes. They can't afford to lose even a single one. So you never know for sure what's going to happen. But, yeah, you know, he, you know, he might get Olympia Snow. They might get uh, Susan Collins. Um, but, geez, I mean, even, you know, for a while people were talking about, you know, maybe George Voinovich of, uh, would, would vote for it. I mean, he's, you know, he's said things in the past to make you think he might. He's not running for reelection. But then a couple of weeks ago, he, he, you know, pretty clearly said he wasn't going to vote for it. So, I mean, even there, you don't have a chance of, of getting a Republican. But I think, you know, my sense is that at this point, even the conservative Democrats, you know, the Ben Nelsons and Blanche Lincolns of the, of the caucus, even they want to see Democrats pass something. Even if they're not thrilled with every detail of the bill, they, they, they want to see Democrats pass something. They know that it would be disastrous for the party not to. And I think when push comes to shove, 
they'll end up voting for it. The, probably at this point, it could be that the biggest uh, question mark is um, our old friend Joe Lieberman, who is part of the caucus but is not actually a Democrat. And who, yeah, he's one of the 60 votes when people say the Democrats have 60 votes, right, Kevin? Right, exactly. I mean, yeah. Bernie but Sanders not... is an independent, but, but he'll vote for it, and Joe Lieberman's an independent. You never know with him. I mean, his, his past... You know, his past record says he'll vote for it. I mean, on domestic issues, he's always been a pretty mainstream Democrat. But eh, you never know with him now, and he could vote against it. And he doesn't really have to care all that much about whether the Democratic caucus sticks together because, you know, he's technically not a Democrat anymore. But, but I was thinking about this the other day, Kevin. Remind me, did the Democrats give him chairmanship of some subcommittee? Oh, yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's on Homeland Security or something. He has a chairmanship that he likes. I mean, is there any possibility that if he doesn't go along with this, they can just say, "Screw you, Joe," and take it away? We're just not, you know, we're not playing this game anymore with you. And then they, you know, then they go down to 59. That's true. But if he's not voting with you to begin with, then you really only have 59. That, I mean, that's yeah. That would be my take. I mean, I, I've seen, you know, I've, I've heard all the arguments for for playing nice with Lieberman, and they all make sense. You need to vote. Um, but yeah, if, if you're not going to get his vote, then you sort of lose that argument. And what's the point of, of keeping up the facade? A white blank page had a swelling. But deny my affections, my affections. But tell me now, where was my fault in loving you with my whole heart? Oh, tell me now, where was my fault in loving you? John Maynard and the Republicans say, hey, you know what, uh, these Democrats, they just, they're, they're trying to shove this bill down our throat, and they come and do a goofy press conference where they uh, have printed out the whole bill, killed a couple of trees to do so, and they say, we, you need to put this up online for 72 hours so the lobbyists can check it out and rip it apart. I mean, so that the American people can read it. Yeah, I know. We're going to go and read it, right? Uh, in Senator Pat Roberts had accidentally admitted that they needed this 72 hours earlier in the middle of a Senate debate so that the providers could look at it, meaning the health care providers, their lobbyists could look at it and tell them how to attack it. So they've been going along that uh, line of attack for a while. It's super goofy now because the Democrats have agreed. Stanley Hoyer says, yeah, absolutely. It's going to be on the website for more than 72 hours. So they come and do the press conference anyway, because that's the goofballs that the Republicans are, right? So now the problem is John Bain is going to get asked, hey, can you put up the Republican proposal online for 72 hours? And he doesn't have a very good answer to that. Let's check that out. Mr. Uh, Mr. Hoyer said that he would put the manager's amendment online for 72 hours. Will the Republicans put their alternative online for 72 hours as well? Uh, well, we'll, uh, uh, we'll have our ideas ready. Just yeah. a follow-up on the Republican alternative. Um, is it your plan to have one Republican alternative that you all will get behind and endorse? Uh, we have a number of ideas that, uh, that we would like to proffer in this process, and we're not quite sure how the majority intends to proceed. Uh, and so until we understand how they intend to proceed, it's pretty difficult for us uh, to, uh, to have a solid plan. Dude, that's a little embarrassing, man. You did a whole press conference, right? They, they, you had to be at least prepare for the question. Like, you have no plan. Everybody knows. The whole country has no, knows you have no plan. So don't you think they might ask you that question? So when they do, he's like, oh, uh, yeah, no, uh, we don't have any land to put, plan at all to put up online. Uh, well, you know, you have to understand we're in a tough spot here, so it's pretty difficult for us to have a solid plan. Uh, and when will you be putting that up? Oh, right, never. Seriously, how does anybody vote for these guys in good conscience? All they got is, you know, tear it down, tear it down, tear it down. That's all they got. Uh, you can kind of see where they're coming from. He said, well, until the majority um, 
tells us more things that we can say no to. We don't know what to say no to. <laughs> That's exactly it. Nicely done, JR. Like, I mean, you mean a constructive plan, the one that we want to do for healthcare reform? They look around like, it's a good way, but we don't want to do healthcare reform. I mean, we really do. We just don't have a solid plan yet. Yeah, that's exactly right. They don't have anything yet because they don't know what to say no to. Man, they're pathetic. Pathetic. Speaking of going out there crowing about it, how about that Joe Lieberman? He has found another opportunity to capture the imagination of America. Well, you're focusing more on Joe Lieberman, and I focus more on Harry Reid, because what's fascinating about the public option in the health care overhaul bill... Can you mean the consumer option? The consumer option, exactly. Nancy Pelosi has told us we shouldn't call it the public option. We should call it the consumer Option. Good. And this program is coming to you from National Consumer Radio. Like the 2000 election, when we thought Gore had won, and then we thought that Bush had won, and then we thought Gore had won, and then, we, and then we didn't know anything until the 37 days later in Florida, we thought the public option was dead when the Senate Finance Bill came out with no public option in the bill. Then suddenly it was live again when Harry Reid said the public option will be included. But it seems like Harry Reid forgot to ask his 60 member caucus, including the two independents, how they feel about this. You know, wait a minute. Can you know perfectly? Really well that they're polling these people constantly, their staffs are talking. It isn't a lack of information. So what's Harry Reid really up to? I don't know the answer though to that. Maybe solidarity with Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in the House, but uh, maybe put pressure on these wavering moderates that, look, it's a done deal. You might as well get on board because the train is leaving the station. I think uh, the untold story here is the pressure he's getting from the other direction. I don't think it's Nancy Pelosi that he's worried about. He knows he has to go to conference with the House at some point or another, but he's trying to get a bill through the Senate. And he's had Jay Rockefeller whom he respects, and a lot of other people on that side of the Democratic caucus, Roland Burris saying, I'm not voting for anything that doesn't have public option. Now, Burris doesn't get a lot of respect in Washington right now, but that is another vote they need. Every bit as much as they need Every vote, every of the 60 gets respect, right? Exactly. So... Harry Reid, at this particular juncture, felt the ball had to go back over the net to the public option side one more time. And so he puts it in with this states may opt out provision to test whether or not that state opt out provision would be enough to somehow magically grease the deal. And do we think that that protects the Democratic moderates, like the Blanche Lincolns who were up in 2010, like the Blue Dog Democrats who were up in the House in 2010? It could if they have the option for their state to opt out before anything becomes effective. If they can't opt out until after the public option is already part of national law, then no, then that's not going to win them over. But if they somehow had the opportunity to wash their hands of it before it ever happened, so that the state of Arkansas in Blanche Lincoln's case, or which Whichever state had a chance to take themselves out of the mix, conceivably that would be something that he could get to 60 on. And if many states do opt out of this program, do the progressives come back and say this is a watered-down, weak bill that's perhaps worse than what we have now? That's the nature of compromise. You try to find something that, while it displeases everybody, it doesn't run anyone completely out of the room. And right now, the problem he has is he's got the Rockefellers and the Burrises saying, we're out of there unless there's something in there we can say to our constituencies is what we want. And you've got the rest of those folks. The buys, the Nelsons. That's right. And they're more numerous, no question. The more moderate Democrats saying, we're not on board for anything that has public option on it. And so along comes Nancy Pelosi and says, well, let's just not call it a public option anymore. That makes people think it's taxpayer financed, which it isn't. So let's call it the consumer option and make it look like an add-on special extra plus for you because you're a good American citizen. Well, here's another word that could be called. What about reconciliation? Oh, God, you know, that is the kind of word that just gets me. 
When I hear reconciliation, I just want to vote for it. Can I vote for it twice? Let's explain what that is. Reconciliation would be the process by which the Democrats pass the bill. Ron is making a face because I'm quoting one of the CQ columns. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the, 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 the point is the Democrats could take a very risky move and decide to say that the the magic number is not 60, it'll be 51. And if they do that, I mean, not that there's any comedy, not comedy, but comedy in the Senate anyway, but I suspect that the Senate would shut down for the next two years if they decide that it's only 51 votes needed to pass this. And there are a number of other pieces of legislation that the administration and the Democratic majority badly want to consider. Financial re-regulation. Clean air. What you're going to do about Wall Street. The eventual fight that's going to have to be joined over foreign policy with respect to Afghanistan, with respect to Iraq. Try getting a Republican vote on behalf of anything that President Obama pushes through if they fight for reconciliation on the health care bill. But, but let me just ask, what are the chances of a Republican vote anyway? Is this not the downside of the strategy the Republicans have adopted in 2009 of giving absolutely no votes to anything the Democrats want to do? They have, in a sense, already gone nuclear. They have already gone to the mattresses. And why should the Democrats try to accommodate them when there's no indication they're ever going to get any Republican votes for anything? If we don't get health reform, the reason we won't get the public option if we don't get the public option. If the current proposal remains as it is, unamended, before the final vote on the floor, that I will not vote for closure because I don't support uh, a government-operated health insurance company that'll end up costing the taxpayers a lot of money. Would you filibuster it? Would you actually stand on the floor and read from the? I'm sure I won't be alone, but uh, uh, <laughs> but I'd be prepared to. But I, I just I'd be prepared to. Senator Joseph Isadora Lieberman of Connecticut has thrown himself on the tracks. He has magically transformed himself into a wrench and stuck himself into the works. Senator Lieberman has decided to make history by filibustering health reform against his own party. Mr. Lieberman's decision to buck his own party here, to not even allow them a vote on health reform, he says is predicated on his hard and fast opposition to the public option, which, as you know, would give people a choice of going with a private health insurance company or going with a government-run plan. The problem is that in trying to explain why he's trying to stop health reform, Mr. Lieberman appears to have drifted into, I really don't understand the public option territory. This is a new entitlement program, and the taxpayers and the, and the premium payers uh, are going to end up paying for it, or else the debt's going to go higher, and that's just the wrong thing to do now. In the world sometimes described as the reality-based community, the Congressional Budget Office has in fact concluded that the public option is expected to slash the federal deficit. It's paid for by premiums of those who choose to enroll, not by by taxpayer dollars. And, by the way, it's not an entitlement. Still, though, on the basis of his demonstrably and obviously untrue arguments about the public option, Senator Lieberman says he's willing to filibuster his own party with Republicans in order to stop even a vote on health reform. If you Google Joe Lieberman and filibuster, you will find that Mr. Lieberman has taken quite an interesting journey on the issue in recent years. As we reported last night, and as Sam Stein of Huffington Post has also reported, Mr. Lieberman has a long history of being against the filibuster. On big bills about the border and bankruptcy and even the Iraq war, Mr. Lieberman has a history of voting against the filibuster, voting to allow a majority vote, even on measures that he doesn't ultimately agree with. 
Beyond that, in 2005, Joe Lieberman joined what was called the Gang of 14. The Gang of 14 was an effort to stop Democrats from filibustering George W. Bush's judicial nominees. Mr. Lieberman and the rest of the gang physically signed a pledge that they would only use the filibuster in, quote, extraordinary circumstances. That was Joe Lieberman then in a pledge that the filibuster should only be used in order to help George W. Bush get his nominees through. This is Joe Lieberman now. Cloture, but the rest of your colleagues could then vote for it. Well, because, um, <laughs> because that is not using the rights that I have as uh, a senator under the rules of the Senate to stop something from happening, I think will be bad. Oh, of course I'd filibuster. <laughs> Why wouldn't I? I have the power to. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Lieberman is on the record as being the anti-filibuster guy, even on bills he cares about and in general as part of the Gang of 14. He was against it. Now, not so much. Here's maybe a window into understanding why. Here's Joe Lieberman talking with Fox News' Glenn Beck on Election Day. Do you agree that uh, Senator Hatch said to me that... Uh, if we don't at least have the firewall of the filibuster uh, in the Senate, that in many ways America will not survive. Well, I, I hope it's not like that, but I fear. I fear. I fear Democrats getting 60 seats, said Joe Lieberman. I fear, you're right, Glenn Beck, that America will not survive. Democrats having the 60-seat majority that Americans just voted for them to have. Well, now that Democrats do have 60 seats, including him, Joe Lieberman is doing what he can to presumably, in his own mind, save America from his own party by blocking the Democratic agenda from within, working against the Democrats while still caucusing with the Democrats. Understanding the mind and motivations of anyone, Joe Lieberman in particular, uh, it's a dark and winding path. But it's not just Joe Lieberman who has to answer here. Late last year, President Obama intervened personally to make sure that Senator Lieberman would keep all his Democratic Party perks, even after the last election, in which Senator Lieberman not only campaigned against Obama and for McCain, he also campaigned for down-ticket Republicans in the House and the Senate. When, despite Lieberman's best efforts, the Democrats still won a majority in the Senate, President-elect Obama argued for Lieberman to get one of those chairmanships, even though Senator Lieberman had worked against the Democrats. He still has that powerful Homeland Security Committee chairmanship as a gift from the Democratic Party, which really, really, really did not have to give it to him, and which he has repaid for their inexplicable generosity toward him by promising to blow up health reform. Why? Why are they allowing him to keep that chairmanship? And what are they getting for it? Mavericks. That's why I love almost friend of the show, almost Democrat Joe Lieberman. When he lost the 2006 Democratic primary for the U.S. Senate, he didn't let the voters push him around. He formed the Connecticut for Lieberman party and won the old-fashioned way by splitting the Democratic vote. Well, the Joe-mentum is rolling again because yesterday he announced that he will join a Republican filibuster of any health care bill that includes a public option. It's still a government-run health insurance plan that puts the federal taxpayer on the line. And I don't want to do that at this point in our nation's history.
Exactly. The perfect point in our nation's history was during the last 10 years when Joe Lieberman said he supported it. <laughs> of course, some people in Connecticut are upset that Joe now opposes the public option. Namely, the 64% of people in Connecticut who support a public option. But remember, Joe's party is Connecticut for Lieberman, not Lieberman for Connecticut. <laughs> Big difference. You see, Joe is a true independent. He's independent of political parties. He's independent of his constituents. So I say stick to your principles, Joe. And as soon as you can, let us know what those are. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, I know how you must be feeling because either one, you know, one of two things, you either rushed ahead, as I suggested, to the end of the show to find out what this big announcement was, very big, very exciting, or you've just been waiting patiently or anxiously for almost 55 minutes through the show to hear the big news. I mean, healthcare, like, geez, have we not heard enough about healthcare recently? Of course, the big news is here at the end of the show. So now we're at the end of the show, you're ready, you're primed. Uh, first, let me just thank a couple of members. Oh, no, 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 I'm just kidding. Here's the big news. After a month and a half in the making, the Best of the Left podcast has just launched an awesome iPhone and iPod Touch application. Let that just sink in for a second. And yet, you, you heard me right. I know, if you've been listening for a long time, you're probably thinking, how in the world did Jay manage to actually get on the ball and make something that's actually a little bit ahead of the curve? I, I mean, a, a, an iPhone application made specifically for this podcast, you know, based on my record, I should have been coming out with this about three years from now. That That's usually how how on the ball I am uh, coming out and, and really utilizing new technology. Luckily, I have the backing of a very, very cool, very savvy production company who uh, hosts the show and is always looking for new ways. You know, frankly, you know, no, no knock on them, but frankly, they're always looking for ways to make money. But anyways, with the, you know, the magic of capitalism and the invisible hand at work, uh, my production company came to me with the idea of producing an iPhone application, which they have created. And they basically gave me a template to work with. And I filled in all the information for the podcast. And now you all are the uh, very grateful beneficiaries. So what's it all about? Okay, so obviously, you already listen to the show, you already get it. So so what else do you what's the purpose of having an, uh, an application? Well, obviously, there's a little bit more to it than just the podcast. There's some uh, bonus content, bonus features that actually make it worthwhile to go out and get the app. So, uh, so what's different? Just uh, I'll start. I'll start low. Just for instance, every episode I I post a little image along with the show. Every episode gets its own little icon, and so through the application, if you happen to like the image I use, you can save it. There's a little button. You can save the wallpaper used uh, and you can keep it on your phone transfer it to your computer whatever i've had a couple of people every once in a while i'll use an image and they'll write me an email and say hey you know that's a cool picture where did you get it where can i find it i'd like to have it so there you go and we're just starting small second of all uh you don't have to sync with your computer if you have an iphone or an ipod touch as soon as the show is posted it's it's available on your phone you don't have to download it. You don't have to sync with your computer. You don't have to do anything. It's just open the application when you're connected to the internet, and boom, there it is. The, the newest episode is right at the top. Second of all, not only do you have instant access to whatever the newest episode is, the moment it's available in, in the podcast feed, you also have access, instant access, to the entire back catalog. And the back catalog goes back to 2006. So I know I've heard from people that either they uh, find the show and like it so much they go back and, and listen to the whole archive um, or they start at the beginning and work their way forward. But now you can actually listen, if you want, to 
any episode that has been produced since the first one that was in this feed. It's, it's not the very, very first episode I ever posted, but the first one that's in this feed is back from 2006. You can listen to any episode between here and then, and it doesn't take up any space on your device. You know, I've looked recently, and if you downloaded every podcast I've made, it's, I mean, well, first of all, it's something like nine days worth of time and about that many gigabytes of information. It's, it's like eight gigabytes of information, so it's a lot of space. But now you can listen to all of it on your phone or iPod Touch, and it doesn't take up any space on your device. It streams it all over the internet. What could be better? Okay, we're getting close to the end of the features list, but this is a good one. If you are familiar with how these applications work, you're probably aware that you can't use multiple applications on an iPhone at the same time. And so you're thinking, well, if I have an application for the show and I'm listening to it, then I probably can't do anything else either. But that's not true. There's actually a very cool little feature called background play. And so when you find the show, you know, the, the edition of the podcast that you want to listen to, there's a button you can push, say, played in the background. And so you actually just access the show, you access it through the internet, and then you can continue to use your phone for anything else, and the show will play in the background. Brilliant, eh? Doubt me now, believe me later. I've seen it, I've used it, it's awesome. Okay, now finally, last one, but it's the most important, and, and this, is, this is what you're looking for anyways. Everything else has been great up to this point, but finally, listeners who use, or at least have, this application on their device, for every single episode that's posted, there's gonna be one extra clip of bonus content. And I'll say right now, almost every time there's a bonus clip, it'll be video, because that's cooler. So for instance, if you go out and you buy the application and you listen to this show, the bonus content for this show is a clip from The Daily Show having to do with healthcare that was great. It was, you know, it was a really good clip from The Daily Show. It, it played okay. You know, the audio of it is okay for the show, but not great. And then, frankly, I ran out of time. It, the, the show was, it was looking like it was going to go long. And then this clip from The Daily Show, it has a lot of visuals. You know, a, a lot, if you just listen to the audio, you'd, you'd miss out on a little bit. So I, I, I decided that you really need the visuals there, and so I, I'm just gonna make it the bonus clip. So if you have the application, there's just a button inside the uh, this edition. You click for the bonus clip, and it pops right up. It's, again, streamed from the internet. It doesn't take up space on your phone. And voila, just like that, for every episode, from here until the end of time, or at least that's the plan, there will be not just the regular, you know, hour or so of content. You get an extra probably five or ten minutes on average. Now, I know what you're thinking. That sounds amazing, and I would pay $20 for that. Not just $20 now, but $20 every month that I was allowed to use this application forever. I would never want to stop paying $20 just for that service of having all these extra features, all this bonus content, all at my fingertips without having to sync with my computer and without taking up any extra space on my device. And to that, I say, memberships are available. They don't even cost $20, but we'll take $20 and you can stay a member for as long as you want. But that's not what we're charging for the application. In fact, the app costs $1.99 and you never have to pay a subscription of any kind. You buy it once and you have it forever. I just can't possibly think of anything that you should spend your two dollars on instead of this application it i just can't think of anything that costs two dollars that in real terms is worth more than this app not to mention you help the show a very little bit for buying it and help spread the word so frankly everyone if you own uh, an iPhone or an iPod Touch, you need to go out and buy this application right now. Because if you all go out and buy it all at once, 
it's going to rise in the rankings and actually more people are going to find the show just because you all go and push the app to to the higher rankings in the app store so just the same way as we've been able to push up the show in the itunes podcast store before now we're going to push up the app and do the same thing and for two bucks i mean who doesn't have two bucks in their couch to throw away and just you know toss it my way and you get a totally awesome application in return okay so that, that was the news and if you don't think that that was one of the biggest announcements i've ever made then i don't know what show you've been listening to but that was exciting for me and i'm exhausted now okay so now just real quick i actually am gonna thank a couple of members carl p signed up on august 27th and hillary h signed up uh on september 25th for a year's worth of membership awesome uh for both of you thanks so much for for signing up for membership whether you sign up month to month or sign up uh for you know a, a full year subscription uh in advance i just i couldn't do it without the members um it doesn't even cost 20 dollars a month it's only five dollars a month and if you pay for the, the year in advance you actually save an extra five bucks on that an amazing deal you help out the show you get access to the raw feed which you know is even a little bit better than the application you know the application you get one clip of bonus content the raw feed you get way more than that so that's great for the members and they are why i'm here talking to you right now if not for the members you'd never see another show posted on wednesday again because i'd have to you know be at a real job somewhere so that is it for today. You can support the show by telling five friends about the show. Go ahead and tell five friends about the application as well, because it's awesome. Um, by the way, it's really easy to find the application. If you search in iTunes for Best of the Left Podcast, it comes right up. You'll see both. You'll see the podcast and the application. And if that's uh, too sketchy for you, there's it's there, I obviously have posted a link right on the website, bestoftheleft.com, to the app store. It'll take you right to where you need to go. No worries. Then, of course, while you're there, you can leave a five-star review in the iTunes podcast store and a five-star review in the app store. Once you purchase the app, go ahead and leave a review in, in iTunes and tell everyone how awesome it is. That also helps pump up the rank of that application. So now the show's gone really long. I'm going to skip everything else I usually say and just say, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you every Wednesday and every weekend. Thanks to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, smell black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room. Shadow bases the floor.